Well, how's everybody doing tonight? Amen. It's good to see everybody. I'm going to go ahead and open up to where I'm going to be preaching, but I am going to give my testimony. Uh, I have not, as far as I know, given it on a youth night here. I believe I have given my testimony here before, but uh, basically I thought I was saved around eight or nine years old, seven or eight, something like that. And uh, I remember I thought, well, I'm going to go tell my mom I got saved because I saw my sister do it a few months ago, and I thought, that's all it was, right? All you had to do was tell your parents that, you know, you believed in God. I knew who God was. I did believe in God when I was younger, but uh, that was not salvation. Um, Up until I was 14 years old, uh, I finally found Christ one day. I was I was sitting in my bedroom, and I was thinking about it, and I thought, man, if I die right now, I go to hell, and I know it. I thought, I was confused when I was younger. I've been holding on to that with pride, and and two things dawned on me. Number one, I was a sinner, and number two, I had sinned against God, and I, I started thinking about it, and I I had struggled with it for a long time. Me and my parents even talked about it one night. I didn't get saved then, even though I thought, well, all it was a simple belief, but not until I realized that Christ had paid it all. And not until I realized that I didn't have to do anything but accept that he paid it all. Until I really believed that Christ had done everything that I needed to go to heaven already. And I just had to believe in God. That's what it was. I had to believe in Jesus. And I never came to that realization before. And uh, when I finally accepted that Christ had done everything for me that I needed to go to heaven, and I believed in Jesus, that's when I got saved. And Brother Josh talked about it. It was when he stepped out into the aisle. And that's the, that's the purest form of belief right there, that faith in your heart. And uh, it's not what I'm going to be preaching on tonight, even though it's it is something good to preach about. Salvation is wonderful. And we are going to mention salvation tonight in the message, but that's not going to be the main theme. Um, turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 and verse 14, and uh, we won't read it all together, I'll just read it real quick. Bless them which persecute you, bless, and curse not. Dear Lord, uh, bless this message, Lord, the best you can, Lord. Uh, you know, help me as I speak, Lord. I pray that you use me, Lord, and you speak through me, God. And uh, dear Lord, just help the outcome of the message, Lord, to be everything that you want it to be, God. And uh, Blessed Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So Romans 12, 14, it says, Bless sandwich persecute you, bless and curse not. Romans goes on a really big rant for a long time. I don't know if you guys know that, but there at the very beginning of Romans, it really does go after uh, evil men, and it goes after seducers, and it goes after the uh, homosexuals. It goes after just about everything under the sun. And while Romans does present the gospel all the way through it, Romans really goes after a bunch of sinful people and shows that it's wrong. But then all of a sudden, in chapter 12, it says, Bless them which persecute you. 
And I start thinking about it, and I thought, I thought, well, the Sodomites, they're, they're taking people right out of our church. And I thought, and the, the wicked politics, I was like, they're brainwashing people. And I started thinking about all these things. I was like, people are just dropping out of church just being around p- people who hate God. And it rubs off on them. I was like, and God wants us to bless them? That's too much persecution. That's, that's more than I can let slide. I can't bless them. But it says, bless them which persecute you. So we've been persecuted by the world. But we can't persecute the sinner instead of the sin. We have to persecute the sin. And no one really hits on that real hard. Because we really do. We hate the I don't say we hate. We hate the sin of sodomy. And we hate the sin of seduction. And we hate the sin of uh, just being really rude to people. But we're still supposed to bless the person with salvation. Everybody has to know about Jesus. Everybody has to know about the gospel. And while there's so many things that we hate, you can't hate the person. Because if you hate the person, you send them to hell. And uh, so number one, we're going to bless them with the gospel. The people who persecute us, we're going to bless them with the gospel. And that's going to them and telling them about salvation and telling to them that Jesus Christ paid the price. By grace are you saved through faith. How is that not more plainly? To give it to every single person that we see, every single soul, there is... I don't even know how many people are in here today, but each one of you is a soul. Even the kids that aren't born yet in here today is a soul. And if they die, that's a soul gone. If one of you die, that's a soul gone. And that soul will go to heaven or hell based off if they believe in Jesus Christ. Now, uh, so we read the verse, it says, Bless them that persecute you, and again I say bless. He really stresses that. And it says, and curse not. So when we do look at somebody and we do say, you know, they're not really worth it. And I don't think I'm going to give the gospel to them because of the wicked things they've done. You just curse that person. You just said, I don't want you having salvation. And that's probably one of the worst curses you can give somebody ever. I'm not talking about cussing. Cussing's one thing. That's, that's saying wicked words to somebody. Cursing somebody is wishing bad upon them. And every time you turn somebody away, you curse them. And uh, you curse them to hell. <clears throat> Persecuting others in the church. Listen, the last place that we need persecution, persecution is from people in the church. Persecuting other people in the church. You know... Uh, right up there at uh, chapter 12, verse 4, it says, For we, as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. Not everybody's going to do the same things as you in the church. And say they're, they're living in sin. Well, you can take care of that one-on-one with them and God and tell them how God needs to take care of it with them. That's as far as you need to go. But persecuting somebody else in the church, not talking over with them, that's the biggest separation you can put in church. It's incredible. And then when we persecute the, the sinner and not the sin, that's, 
That's equally as bad. Bless without cursing. Bless with an example. You say, well, I'm not always going to go out, and I can't always hand a track out to the next hundred people walking towards me. But you can tell when you walk by. They can tell if you're wanting to bless them. They can tell. Compassion. If they look at you and they see you talking to somebody else, they see that you care, they're going to get something is up with you. They're going to get something's different about you. Compassion. Blessing with an example. You are an example. And live by that. You know, Matthew 5.44, it says, By saying to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you, and persecute you. Listen, guys, we're going to be persecuted for the rest of our lives because we're Christians. And as much as we persecute others and as much as others persecute us, we have to bless them with the gospel, despite what they did. We have to bless them with the example of Christ. And why do we bless? Why do we bless others with this? You still feel like, well, you haven't given me a reason to. I can still dislike those people. And I still don't have to listen to that. But Christ set the example for us. My sin persecuted Christ. And my sin hung him on the cross. And your sin persecutes him every day. But he died on the cross. And gave us the greatest blessing that we could ever have. And it was the gospel. It was the opportunity to be saved. Do you all understand that tonight? That we bless because Christ was the example. That's why we witness. Because Christ led the ultimate example. When we persecuted him, he blessed us. And that was all that was on my heart tonight. I'm going to be in Ruth tonight. Ruth chapter number one. It's a small book right after Judges. If you're not completely familiar with your Bible, it's more toward the beginning of the Bible. It's Ruth chapter one. And I think most of us are familiar with the story of Ruth. But um, I'm going to read a little bit of it here, starting in verse number one. It says, Now it came to pass in those days in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons um, and the name of the man was Elimelech <laughs> and the name of his wife Naomi and the name of his two sons Malon and Chilion Ephraites of Bethlehem Judah and they came into the country of Moab and continued there and Elimelech Naomi's husband died and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. And the, women was, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. So, um, again, I think most all of us know the story of Ruth, but 
um, a woman named, or a uh, man, excuse me, uh, named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and his two sons um, went out to sojourn to the country of Moab because there was a famine in the land. And so they started traveling and it says that um, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, uh, died. And so then uh, Naomi's two sons went and married Orpah and Ruth and then those two sons died, Malon and Chilion. Um, and so now Naomi is left with just her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. And um, going down to verse number eight, it says, And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as ye have dealt with me, the dead, and, or as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. So Naomi tries to convince Orpah and Ruth uh, to return back to their to their homes um, once their husbands died, um, but they both insist that they're going to stay with Naomi. And uh, then going down to verse 14, it says, And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. So um, Naomi kept on trying to convince them to go back to their homeland and um, kind of get a, a fresh start. And um, Orpah decides finally to, to do that, to go back to her homeland. Um, and that, that wasn't necessarily a problem. But then in verse number 15, it says, And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. So um, Ruth decided to stay with her mother-in-law, and Orpah decided to go back to her homeland. But the problem was that she also went back to her gods that she came out of. She went back to the old gods that she used to worship. And... Um, I was just reading uh, Ruth for my devotions a little while ago, um, and it stuck out to me that um, sometimes Christians think that um, we know what's best for us, and in hard times, I mean, Orpah's husband died. She's now a widow, um, and there's a famine in the land, and things are hard. Um, so she returns to the homeland and returns to the gods that she's used to um, and serves them instead of the one true God, thinking that, she'll be able to prosper better in life um, doing so. And um, we our, our own plan is never better than what God has in store for us. Uh, we, don't, we can't see the future like God can. And sometimes um, if times are hard, which they do get very difficult at times, um, it's easy to just go back to what we're used to. And um, at least for me anyway, uh, since youth camp, God's put a new fire in me for some things. Um, but right when you get home from youth camp, um, the devil tries to pluck some of those things out of your heart and uh, some things get difficult and you just want to go back to what you're used to and serve, as the Bible words, your, your old gods. And um, even though that might be the easiest thing to do, it won't help us prosper in the best way. And um, God knows God knows what's best for us. And so... Uh, Ruth decides to stay and worship the Lord. It says in verse number 16, And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, 
I will, I, uh, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught, be, if aught but death part thee and me. So Ruth commits her life completely and wholly to serving the Lord. And um, she's, she's committed to, um, to serving Christ um, through, through all of the, the hardships. Um, she decides that she's going to stick with Naomi and keep serving the true Lord. And God greatly blesses her for that. Um, she finds a husband uh, named Boaz, and it says later on in the book of Ruth, uh, verse number 16 of chapter 4, the Bible says, And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. And the woman, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So David was a great king of Israel, who later on in his lineage was Jesus Christ. Um, so the Lord gave the privilege to Ruth um, to bear a child who later on down in the line uh, was David, the king of Israel, and then uh, the king of everything, Jesus Christ. Um, and so it was, it was a... Um, compelling thought to, to think about it that way. I've, sometimes it's, it's easy to pass over um, smaller books of the Bible. And um, for me, you know, it's, it's a love story about a girl. So, you know, sometimes I kind of just pass over like, oh, you know, whatever. But um, it really is, um, it really is a, a convicting thought that um, it's easy to go back to the things that we're used to and um, go back to what the Lord has saved us out of. But the Lord knows uh, what's best for us, and he's trying to lead us to um, the most prosperous and blessed life possible. And uh, we just need to, to trust him in that. Turn to uh, Exodus chapter 34. No, that's that's good, Haddon. Bible's got a lot of a lot of funny things in it sometimes, but uh, it's all profitable for doctrine, and uh, we can all learn from it. Sure. So Exodus chapter thirty-four, verse number seven, and uh, we're gonna be flipping all over the Bible tonight. So if you want to just write them down and catch up later, or keep up now, or something, you'll probably beat me to most of the text anyway. So um. Exodus 34, verse number 7. Uh, verse number 6, actually. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. Uh, that's all good so far, but let's keep reading. And that will, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Um... So this, this causes a lot of problem for the people that uh, when you ask them if they're saved, they say, uh, well, you know, God's good, and uh, yeah, I'm going to heaven. You know, God's good. He, he, won't, he won't punish me like that. God's, uh, God's on my side. You know, I, I, I do pretty good things. Um, and, and so you see here, God is good, you know, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. That will by no means clear the guilty. This brings us to John 3. You must be born again. God is loving. He is forgiving. He will clear. Uh, he won't clear the guilty, but uh, he'll he'll clean the guilty. 
you know, he'll take, he'll get rid of their sins. He won't, uh, he's not going to just pass over, you know, um, in the story in uh, Exodus, they apply the blood, then God passes over. God's completely ready to forgive anybody, but if you're found guilty on judgment day, uh, he's not going to pass over you. He's not going to clear you. So uh, turn to Psalms 32. Psalm is basically in the middle of your Bible, maybe a little bit off-center. And uh, this is quoted in Romans 5, I think. Uh, it's a really good passage. But uh, if we're not careful, it looks like it's going to contradict Exodus, but it's not. All, all the Bible lines up. Psalm 32, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and, who, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Uh, skip down to verse 5. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Uh, Salah. So we've got God here who says, I will not clear the guilty. But then we see here, uh, David's one that wrote the psalm. His uh, transgressions are forgiven, his sin is covered, and the Lord is not imputing his iniquity. So uh, what is God's plan? How does he do this? He can't just let the wicked go. He's righteous. Uh, we never talk about the attributes of God anymore, but um, priority, his chief attribute is righteousness. And, um, and uh, we can't just brush over that and say, God will forgive you. you know, just come. He's, got, he's got a plan. And uh, Brother Josh preached out of Acts 15. The gospel is simple, and I'm, you know, I'm right behind him. I'm backing him. But what is the gospel? You know, um, salvation is by grace through faith, but what did God do so it was by grace? Because yes. he's got to do something about this sin problem, or else he's not righteous. Right. So let's turn to uh, Romans 3.23, or Romans chapter 3. We might not start at verse 23. We'll see. This is a, this is a great chapter for witnessing but uh, what it defends is God's righteousness. So uh, let's start in verse, uh, yeah, we'll start in verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that's the guilty, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So, uh, verse 25, God has set forth Jesus Christ to be a propitiation. So, that's, that's God's plan of redemption. That's how God's going to clean the wicked. Um, a propitiation, that's to satisfy someone's wrath, you know, to appease. Uh, to propitiate, a propitiation is the object, you know. Uh, so here's, here's God. He can't just let the, the sin slide. He can't let wickedness and iniquities uh, just, just happen. But in the forbearance of God, in verse 25, uh, in the forbearance of God, he let sin slide just, just for a little bit. He didn't just, you know, he didn't just let them, let them be unpaid for, but for 4,000 years, from Adam all the way to, you know, until uh, the time of Christ, people are sinning. And you've got to be thinking, people are thinking, okay, God's righteous, God's not going to clear the guilty, but here we have all these wicked people, 
You know, how can uh, Abraham be God's friend? How can Aaron be a priest? He made a golden idol. You know, so how can God be friends with all these people? How can he uh, make them righteous? And then finally, 4,000 years into the earth's history, he sacrifices Jesus Christ on the cross openly. And uh, this is the moment when people say, that's how God is righteous. Uh, uh, Jesus is the propitiation. He is the sacrifice for our sins. Uh, God isn't, you know, he's not lying. He is holy. He is, uh, he is everything he said. And, uh, and so they didn't, they didn't have that yet in the Old Testament. You know, they had little pictures and glimpses. But this is the moment when Jesus Christ is crucified, verse 26, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So God reveals himself. He is righteous. It's almost, I don't want to put it like this, but I am. So uh, it's almost like God's defending himself. I, you know, I, I'm, I've never clear, uh, cleared the guilty. I've never let sin slide. I, I nailed it all to this cross. And, um, and we should finish out the rest, but we got a lot more scriptures to go to. So turn to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. So we know Christ is the propitiation. He is the payment. How does that work? What's the science, it, you know, the, the way it works? Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse, verse 18. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, that's, that's quoting Psalm 32, or referring to it, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Amen. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did, God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ said, be reconciled to God. How do you be reconciled to God? Verse 21. For he hath made him. He is God. Him is Christ. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So uh, first got to look at Christ is not a sinner. He never was a sinner. I don't want anybody to be confused. Uh, I was witnessing to a man, I said, he became sin for us, and he stopped me right there. He's like, you know, Christ is holy, which I'm glad he knew that. I'm glad he knew he was perfect, but it's a stumbling block. He was a stumbling block to the Jews, you know, to, to people now he's a stumbling block. We'll get into how he became sin in a second. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. He was perfect, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So how can Christ become sin? Well, he became sin the same way we become righteous. Uh, imputed righteousness, given righteousness. I, Brother Chris, uh, I'm not holy, but God gives me holiness. Uh, so Christ doesn't have to be a sinner to, to take on sin, if that makes sense. So here's Christ. He's on the cross, and God took all the sin from Adam to uh, the last person. I don't know who that is, but he takes all the sin from Adam to the last person, and he puts it all, and he, and he makes Christ into that. And uh, remember, Moses lifts up the serpent in the wilderness on the cross. They took the thing that was biting them. They put it on the cross. God took all the sin in the whole world. He put it on the cross, and he judged it on the cross. Um, I think it's Hebrews 9.26. We won't turn there because we got a lot more to go to. But uh, Christ one time uh, was, was suf uh, suffered or, or sacrificed for the sins of the world. One time. Uh, if it wasn't, then when Adam sinned, he had to be crucified. 
If it wasn't, you know, one time, you know, when Seth, uh, Cain killed Abel, sorry, uh, he'd have been crucified, but one time he paid for the sins of the whole world, uh, whole world. So he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Turn to uh, Luke twenty-two forty-one. So imputed sin. God was not a sinner. Christ is not a sinner. Uh, you know, I don't want anybody to ever think I said anything like that. Um, if he was, then we're still in our sins. But uh, he's not. And uh, Luke 22, it's taken me forever to get there. I went the wrong way. Luke 22, verse 41. This is, uh, Christ is in the garden. It's this last hours before the cross. Um, and uh, he's praying, praying for strength, praying for uh, probably the disciples, no doubt. Uh, and verse Verse 40 of chapter uh, 20, 22. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And uh, this necessarily isn't necessarily important to the gospel or important to um, anything like that, but this cup is not just a cross. It's not just Roman soldiers stabbing him. This cup that he's, he's sweating drops of blood about, it says he's in agony. This is not, this is not just a death on the cross. I, I'm not taken away from the pain of that and stuff, but we see, we see martyrs in the New Testament that go to, go to their death with a smile on their face. Uh, we see, it, just in church history, we see people uh, singing hymns, you know, puffing out their chest, taking pride in Christ. And, uh, you know, death is a scary thing, but Christ isn't necessarily sweating drops of blood about this cross. What he sees is the cup of God, the wrath of God, that's coming down on, on, his, on uh, the sin of the whole world. And uh, that's not really important. I just... I just kind of want to show you that, uh, you know, he's not saying, uh, if you will, you know, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. You know, th God's not looking at a cross. He's seeing the wrath of God. He's seeing the three hours of darkness on the cross where God's going to do who knows what to him to pay for our sins. Right. And uh, I just I wanted to go there. Uh, Luke 23, verse 44. Just uh, want to... Everything I say, I want to make sure I bring it back to the Bible. I don't want to make anything up. Luke uh, 23, verse 44. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. So six hours to the ninth hour, that's three hours. And uh, so here's my question is, how can, we know there's eight billion people on the planet right now. Who knows how many people there's been in the past. How does one man suffer on a cross for three hours, you know, it could have been more, but for sure three hours, and pay for the sins of an entire fallen race. How can he just, well, how does that work? We know, we know it did work because the Bible's true and it tells us, but how does this man suffer for three hours and pay the sin debt of a whole entire universe? And that's because this one man was worth more than the whole universe combined. Um, Turn to 
John 17, 5. Uh, it's, it's called atonement. Why would God let a whole nation, uh, not a nation, a whole world, a whole race free? Well, because he, he judged something that was worth more than the rest of us combined. And, uh, it, well, I'm jumping ahead of myself. John 17, 5. I read this the other day, and I never thought of this before. We'll start uh, with some context here. This is Christ praying for his apostles, praying for his disciples, and for people that are going to believe in him. He says that uh, somewhere in here. Please uh, read it for yourself. Oh, uh, verse 20. Thank you. Verse 20. And uh, so start at verse 4. I have glorified. This is Christ praying, uh, praying. Excuse me. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Yes. So, you know, we always see Christ in Revelations. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. You know, Christ did this for us, so we're going to worship him. In the beginning of time, there's God the Father, there's God the Son, there's God the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And Christ and God shared glory is what this says. Yeah. Uh, so, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee uh, before the world was. So, again, Christ is, if God can glorify Christ, then he really must be something. Turn to Isaiah 6. Amen. Yes, he is. Um, Isaiah 6, you probably know uh, what this is, but, again, I never thought of this until I started going through it recently. Uh we're not going to get into Christophanies, but no man has seen God at any time. Not one person has laid eyes on God except Christ himself. We know that's because he is God. He is man. Um, so this here, unless it's a picture and I'm misunderstanding, Isaiah the prophet here sees God in a vision, sees Christ in a vision, sitting high on his throne. So let's start reading in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. High and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. That's, that's our propitiation, right? Yeah. That's the one that's worthy. That's the one that yeah. uh, we, uh, God sacrificed on our behalf. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy. That's Christ. Yeah. I, I know Christ is God, but this is talking about Christ here. Yeah. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So holy, holy, holy. That's how a whole race can be justified. Because this man, Christ, is triple holy. And uh, he's put in our place on that cross. And that's how it's by grace. That's how... Uh, the book of James, you know, we get kind of confused there because, you know, we don't want to get wrapped up in the works, salvation. But uh, it tells a story there. What if a man walked up to a poor man and said, you know, get some clothes on. Yeah, be warm, eat some food. If the man doesn't provide that, then it doesn't work. So Christ came to us. He said, be clean, be holy. And he provided the way. He provided the righteousness. Um Isaiah 53, I probably quote something from there every time I get to preach up here, but uh, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Yes. This was not, we, our salvation wasn't purchased because, our preacher put it like this, Romans beat up our Savior. 
that, that it by our salvation. I'm sure, you know, we are justified by his blood, and, you know, that's how the blood was shed. But, but what happened on the cross was God looked at every pedophile, every homosexual, at the sin of every, uh, every murder, every liar, uh, at the sin of every, uh, every homosexual. I think I maybe said there were a Jeffrey Dahmer, Adolf Hitler. And he saw Christ, and for three hours the sky went dark. We don't know what happened. And on one hand, I, I hated that Christ suffered for three hours. On the other hand, it only took him three hours to purge the sin of eight billion people plus. Um, so I think we're pretty much wrapped up here. But uh, yeah, worth more than the whole world. It only took him three hours. Turn to Hebrews uh, one, uh, 1 verse 3, I think. Hebrews 1 verse 3. For some reason, it's gone. But uh And if you're saying, I've never really understood this before, how Christ became sin, uh, don't, you know, don't worry if you're saved or not, because or, it's so simple, faith in Jesus Christ. But sometimes we learn more, we understand more, and uh, the book, uh, 1 Peter tells us to grow in the knowledge of Christ, and it bears fruit. And so uh, Hebrews 1, we'll just start reading at verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So Christ didn't need a cross. He didn't need Romans. He didn't need a spear. He didn't need disciples. He didn't need the Virgin Mary. He didn't need a, he didn't need a church. He didn't need a, a, um, a temple. Christ purged our sins by himself. Amen. And uh, again, that might not matter too much you know, for our salvation as long as we understand that it's through Christ. But you know, we're learning about Christ here, and that's good. Um, purged our sins. You know, the Lamb was slain from the foundations of the earth. So, uh, Revelations uh, 13, 8. Before, before God ever created man, he knew that Jesus Christ would be uh, a sacrifice for them. And he didn't have to come down. He didn't have to be lifted up. Uh, you know, God could have punished Christ, you know, uh, taken out his wrath on Christ. But uh, Jesus Christ said, I, if I be lifted up, uh, will draw all men unto myself. And uh, you look at the way Christ came, you know, the perfect city, the perfect time to spread the gospel, and uh, I'm thankful he was willing to do all that, you know, humble himself so we could know that, know that we, uh, we can be forgiven. Back to that story in James, if Christ never came, even if, he, even if he made the way, if he didn't tell us about the way, it wouldn't do us any good. And uh, I think we'll stop there, but uh, just what's been on my heart the past few days, and uh, I hope that encourages you, or maybe you didn't, maybe you've never understood the gospel, and you've never believed the gospel because how can, how can I be forgiven? Well, that's how. He became sin. That's not a typo. That's not a, a mess up in the scripture. Christ became sin for us. He, was, he, he knew no sin. And because God sacrificed him, because God punished him, we can be, we can be saved. So.